Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. We have a uh, guest uh, speaker today, so bringing our message today will be Jordan Rice. Let's give it up for Jordan. There's his family up there. That's his wife, Jessica. They have two kids, a three-year-old and a six-week-old. So you guys know how to pray for rest over the Rice household. Amen? Um, Jordan practiced law for seven years, but for the past four years, he's been pastoring Renaissance Church in Harlem. It's a church plant that will be celebrating their four-year anniversary in September. So uh, awesome work they're doing in Harlem there. I grew up in Westchester, so as Jordan comes to the stage, let's give it up for Jordan. What's going on, Bridge Church? Uh, Yeah, I'm super grateful to be back uh, preaching again. Uh, James is a a dear friend of mine. He has blessed Renaissance on numerous occasions. Uh, He preached at Renaissance a couple of weeks ago, and people haven't stopped talking uh, about it. Uh, He's a a great dude, and I'm so grateful to be here today. So uh, when I was in high school, this was in 1990, so all millennials, cover your ears. Um, There was no such thing as Yelp or Google reviews. Uh, we barely had internet, and it was the internet we did have was dial-up, and if your mother got, off the phone, got on the phone, you had to scream upstairs, Ma, get off the phone, you're messing up my internet. So if you wanted to uh, like find a dentist, for example, you just basically had to call your insurance company and see who took it. You couldn't go through a vetting process to see uh, who a good dentist was. So I went through the normal process, which you did in the 90s, and I called my insurance company to see who was uh, taking my insurance, taking my plan. And I went to this one dude, and as soon as I walked in the office, I just knew something was off. Like everything in the entire office was from the 1960s, uh, including the dentist. He had the same outfit for uh, 40 years straight. And um, I knew that the equipment just looked a little weird. Now, side note, uh, I know there are people who have like, I've never had a cavity, uh, and I hate all of you people who say that. Uh, I've, I've had the Underground Railroad built on my teeth. Um, and I got to the dentist, and he was, it was time for him to drill a cavity. And Homeboy had not just old furniture, but he had old equipment. So this dude's tools was, was a drill with no water. So when he's drilling down to my soul, you can smell uh, burning enamel, and I was cringing the entire way. Uh, I didn't know Jesus then, but I knew how to pray that day. Lord Jesus, please <laughs> let this in. Uh, as he was working, I was uh, confident of a couple things. One, he did seem to kind of know his way around. He did seem like he was really skilled, but I couldn't shake the feeling of why is this dude using such old and terrible equipment? When he got done, surprisingly, it was one of the better cavity fills that I've ever had, and that tooth has actually never had a problem since then, but I still kept on wondering why couldn't this guy use better equipment. Now, I've been thinking about this. In a lot of ways, God is kind of like that old dentist. God has work to do in this world, but the tools that God has chosen to use are severely flawed people like you and me. People that if people were to really ask and do the hard work of investigating our lives, they would see that you and I are in need of some complete upgrades. God's tools of choice are the church. It is not some uh, abstract concept, but it is people that make up this body called the church. And they are people like you and me with all of our flaws, with all of 
our warts. And God doesn't just uh, want to use us, but he wants to use us for his mission to accomplish his glory. Now, I was talking to Rasul a little bit earlier, and he was, uh, you know, asking me, hey, how do you want to be introduced? And um, that question of how you want to be introduced is really a profound one, even though it's pretty simple. Because if you think about it, if you want someone to encapsulate your life in 30 seconds, you're going to tell them the most important things about you. Now, all throughout Scripture, when God is making his introduction to people, this is kind of how God describes himself, um, like you see in Psalm 68, that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. The way that God wants to associate himself, God's bio that he wants read is that God is a God of a concept that we're going to be talking about today called justice. Now, justice is much bigger than um, restoring, uh, than fixing a wrong that has been committed. Uh, oftentimes, in our current context, when you hear this notion called justice, you think about uh, justice for a crime that was committed and, you know, like an extrajudicial ju uh, killing of an unarmed black man. And you think about uh, you wanting justice for someone who a crime was committed against that person, but there hasn't been any arrest or indictment or prosecution now, justice in the Bible includes that, but it goes much beyond that. And justice is basically the restoration of people, the restoration of making people whole again. So sometimes it includes punishment of wrongdoing, but uh, a lot of times throughout Scripture, when you see the concept of, of justice introduced, it's this word called shalom. And it's this concept of the, the wrong in the world being made right and those who are defenseless being defended. Those who are um, on the outskirts of society being brought back in. And when we talk about justice, that's what I kind of want us to get our, our heads around. Now, now, there's a few stories in the Bible that make me uh, tear up every time I think about them. Uh, because I think about what Jesus has actually come to do in our lives. Uh, one of these stories is Jesus when he uh, encounters this man with leprosy. And leprosy is not a disease that we have too much familiarity with today because it is not something that we'd encounter on a day-to-day -day basis here in America. Uh, but leprosy was um, a disease that more than just inflicting physical pain was the emotional and psychological pain of isolation. So if you were to see a spot in your skin and know that you had leprosy, in that very moment you would think to yourself, I'll never have another Thanksgiving with my family. In that very moment, you would know that you would never sit around another Christmas tree and open a gift. You would never be able to hug your kids again. You would never be able to hug your mother again. From that point on, you would be cut off from society. So much so that if you were allowed to come into the town and beg and receive food, you had to tell everybody unclean, unclean, unclean when you walked around so that no one accidentally got close to you. And what happens is a form of emotional torture, almost similar to that of uh, solitary confinement in prison where you go for years and years without ever being touched. When Jesus encounters his leper, more than just a proclamation of healing, which Jesus had done a number of times in Scripture, Jesus is met by this leper and the, lepros, and the leprous man says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And you know what Jesus does to this dude? He touches him. Jesus touches him because what he needed to be whole was not merely a pronouncement of healing. Oh, that man needed to be received back into the community of people. That man needed to be touched by divinity. He needed God's affirmation, not just in words, but he needed it in feeling as well. What Jesus has come to do is to restore that which is broken. 
What Jesus has come to do is to breach the gap between us and God. And what Jesus has come to do and what Jesus calls us to do are to be people who follow in him in those endeavors. Our, our main text for today comes from a passage of scripture in Micah. Uh, if you've been around church uh, a number of times, you might have already heard this scripture. Uh, and basically, this is a, a scripture about what does God require of us if you call yourself uh, one of Jesus' followers. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I don't know if you ever thought about what does God require from you. And here's what scripture is telling us today in Micah, that God requires from us, not to save us, but uh, as a result of what God has done in our lives, God requires from us that we are people that do justice. Now, I've been thinking a lot, Lord, why would you require us to be people that do justice? Uh, what sense does that really make? Um, and one of the, the clearest things that I, that I know how it applies to my own life is thinking through the concept of if anybody should be a person that is after the, the restoration of things and other people, it should be people who have been restored. If anybody on this whole planet should have any heart towards seeing justice happen, it should be someone who themselves have been restored. And it's this concept of grace which compels us to action. Uh, this concept of grace which compels us to give grace and to be people who seek after it in other people's lives. Uh, one of the most profound sermons that's ever been preached was preached by a dude named Peter who uh, 50 days prior to that had had his series of greatest failings. If you read through the story of Peter, uh, you see a dude who was confident, uh, way too confident. He goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, listen, everybody else might deny you, but yo, my hands are good. When they come for you, I got you, bro. I'm not going anywhere. It's going to be me and you to the end. As soon as Jesus heard these words, he looked at him and says, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. Peter says, never, I'll never deny you. By the time the rooster crowed, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was walking around the town and for a number of reasons, out of fear and other reasons, when people would say, hey, aren't you that dude that was with Jesus? I don't know him. I don't know the man. Scripture says what happened next is one of my best, one of my favorite descriptions that I heard, I heard in the entire scripture. Scripture says after the rooster crowed three times and that Peter realized that he had denied Jesus, the one he claimed to love and to follow, it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, to weep bitterly is to be crying so hard that the, the tears are streaming down your face into your mouth and you can taste the saltiness of your own tears. That is a man who has been defeated. That is a man who has felt the sting of disappointment. And what happens next? Jesus hears of Peter's, uh, Peter leaving and Peter's back fishing and Jesus makes a beeline toward this failed disciple. Peter, do you love me? I do, Jesus. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I do, Lord, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I do, Lord, feed my sheep. Peter went on to preach uh, 50 days later, and thousands of people became Christians that day. The greatest of his successes came on the heels of his greatest failure. And if you're thinking about who is the best person to communicate the message of grace, it is a person who has received it. If you're thinking about who is the greatest vessel of justice, who is the greatest vessel of restoration, it is the person, it is the man, it is the woman who himself or herself has been restored by Jesus. So Jesus is uh, so the, the, the command in scripture to be people to do justice. 
uh, is a command rooted in what God has done in our life, uh, rooted in the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to restore us to right relationship with God and right relationship with others. So this command stands that you and I are people that are meant to do justice. Uh, but if you really think about it, like what, what does that mean? What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to be on the road uh, toward justice? Um, a, a few years ago, uh, I, I got um, with some family, and we were in Jamaica, not Queens, but the country. Um, shout out to my brethren in, in here. Um, and in Jamaica, the spot we were at, we weren't, you know, in Montego Bay in a nice little resort somewhere. We were in country in, in Jamaica, and there is no Google Maps in this part of the country, everything on the screen is just green. And you're like, you can't even see any, there are no roads on the screen. And we were going to see a family friend and the entire journey there was not a list of directions on what you should do. It's, there was no highway to hop on, take exit 16, make two rights. It was much more you looking out for things along the way. So say, hey, you're going to go down the road, you're going to see a little man, and he's going to be near a tire shop. And next to the tire shop is a dude named Timmy. He just sits on the bridge all day. When you see him, you know you're going in the right direction. Make a left. Keep going down until you see a church. There's going to be another church, but that, I don't like that one church because six years ago the pastor said something I didn't like. No, I'm kidding. Um, and all along the way, the directions that we were given... There were no street names. There were no road names. They were simply markers for you to look out for on your journey to let you know that you were going in the right direction. In understanding how you become a person that does justice, I don't know of a set of instructions, but I do know of markers, of indications that we see in Scripture that would let you and I know that we're on the right path towards being a person of justice. Now, one of the first things that I have noticed in my life um, is that uh, when we speak about what it looks like to do justice, this is not a one-size-fits-all. So the first thing you need to do is you need to determine where you will engage. Now, if you want to be a person that does justice, in order to answer this question, what should I do, first thing you need to do is to determine where you should engage. Now, a quick note up front, one of the most helpful analogies for us to understand, not just uh, justice, but also the church and you as a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, is uh, this concept called the body. Oftentimes in scripture, you see the body referred to as, uh, the church referred to as the body of Christ. And here's what Paul is getting at when he uh, mentions that, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 20. Here's what it says. It says, for just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body." 
Now, I read all of this to say that one of the greatest mistakes you can make is thinking that the concept of justice is one thing that every single person has to do. And I think what Paul would want us to gather from this text in 1 Corinthians is this thought of this. Every single part of your body is all working towards one goal, but they each do very different things. You have eyes that see. You have ears that hear. You have kidneys that kidney. Um, I got B's and D's in biology, so I don't really know what kidneys do, but I definitely know that they are very, very important, and you can't live without them. Now, the same thing is true in the body of Christ, and I wouldn't want you making the same mistake that I made, thinking that everybody, when we talk about justice, had to be passionate about the same thing. Uh, a few years ago, the New York Times came out with an article called, As District 3 Schools Are Thriving, Harlem Schools Have Been Left to Fail. One of those schools that was mentioned was PS76, uh, the school where our church meets. And the principal of our school, who I have a great relationship, was in that photo. And I read the article with tears in my eyes, thinking about how our schools, the school that we meet in, is being underfunded, while other schools in the Upper West Side are thriving. And it made me boiling mad. And my next step, since I'm the senior pastor, I took the entire church and said, hey, this is what we're doing, everybody. We're all going to put all our attention in PS76. And everybody's like, all right, cool. Um, okay, we'll, we'll follow you. It's a good cause. And, you know, the younger people were like, well, you know, I work nine to nine, and I don't have no kids, so I can't tutor or anything like that. Like, what do you want me to do? And I was like, I'll get back to you in a second. But, you know, but we're all definitely definitely doing this because this is what God is calling us to do. Here's what I was asking those people to do. I was asking everybody to be a set of ears. I was asking everybody to do one thing, and because I was passionate about it, I made the mistake of thinking that everybody should be passionate about it. Now, you do need people to be deeply concerned about the educational system and educational uh, injustices in the city, but not everybody should be doing that. You do need people who are focused on adoption and the foster care system and all of the kids who are being left in that, in that, in that system and, and, and poor homes and, and, and uh, group homes and all these different things, but not everybody needs to be doing that. Some people need to be concerned with the penal system, but not everybody needs to be concerned with the penal system because if the whole body were an eye, what about the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, what about the smelling? This scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 shows us that before you and I determine where we will engage, know that some of us are kneecaps and others of us are eyes and ears and elbows and kidneys and hearts and lungs and livers and all of us make up, thriving together will make up one healthy body moving toward the restoration of all things with Jesus. But I don't want you making the same mistake that I made, thinking that it has to be one single church initiative that everybody has to be super hot about and that everybody has to do the exact same thing because I think if we do that, we will find ourselves running into a wall. So how do you determine where you fit in? you got to get in where you fit in. Uh, how, do you, how will you determine what area you'll engage? Uh, and I think you have to answer, ask yourself three questions uh, to assess what are your gifts, what are your burdens, and what are your interactions? One of the clearest ways for you to identify where it is God might be calling you to engage as a person seeking the restoration of all things is to evaluate what are your gifts? What are you good at? What are your burdens? You might not be good at it, but you might be burdened by it. And what are the regular day-to-day -day interactions that you already have? One of the women in our church is just one of these brilliant people. Um, she went to MIT. And she works at Google. She's like a super senior level um, 
uh, technician. And when you go into her wing at Google, you have to stop, and everybody has like the privacy screens in their computer. They're working on stuff so top secret um, that you're not even allowed in their section. And she's so like gifted at uh, all these different things. Uh, one of the things that she loves to do in her spare time is to go on Excel and to play around with formulas. That's what her fun time. She'll spend an hour just on Excel playing with formulas. If I did that, um, I would pass out. I would just pass out from when I open Excel, my eyes start to get heavy. And, um, <laughs> but that's a gift of hers. Now, she doesn't necessarily have any deep burdens or clear calls. So she just said, I have a gift. And she saw a need. And she decided to meet that need in a godly way. Uh, there's places in our community and people in our community who just need help doing their taxes. She is a whiz with numbers. She literally can do it in her sleep. So she spends a bunch of time from the new year through the tax, end of tax season just doing taxes with people. Now, this is not something that she's woken up with and she's so burdened by tax season or any of these things. She just has a, a, a godly gift and she sees a need that she can meet in a godly way. So she does that. Now, not everybody here is gifted at Excel and taxes, but you might have a gift that you might not even really be passionate about it. But it might be one of the areas that God is calling you to engage based purely on a, that you see a need that you can meet with your giftedness in a godly way. And if you can think about one of those things, then I want you to consider that being an area that you engage in. Another area, another great way to determine whether or not God might be calling you in a specific direction is to think about your burdens. And the burdens are something that I like to define as something that just makes you angry and will not leave you alone. Something that if somebody were to have a, top, a conversation about 20 topics, you get stuck on that one every single time. And you just simply can't move past it. Other people are like, all right, all right, all right. But it deeply bothers you. If you were to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, this is the thing that would keep you from going back to sleep. That is a burden. Uh, there's a famous account in Scripture where you see Moses being called by God. And uh, God calls Moses in Exodus 3. And God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses and Aaron and the whole crew go to Pharaoh. Now, the most important thing in that whole interaction is not the calling of Moses, but what happens to Moses the chapter before that. Um, the chapter before that, Moses is on his balcony. Uh, he had an apartment with a terrace, which is pretty great. And um, as he's looking out on his apartment, he sees an Israelite being beaten up by an Egyptian. Moses is so angry by what he witnesses, by the mistreatment, by the harsh labor, that he finally explodes. And he goes down and he kills the Egyptian. Now, later in that chapter, you see several warnings about what happens to people who use their anger and their burden destructively. And uh, several things in Scripture warn us about what happens when you take your burden and you use it destructively. Um, but well before God ever appeared to Moses in a burning bush, giving him a command, God first lit Moses on fire. Way before Moses ever got the call, he got the burden. And there are some areas in your life that God is preparing you to receive the call to move forward in a certain direction based solely on how much God is allowing you to see and how much God is allowing you to be burdened. Don't bottle that up. Don't push that stuff away. That might be the very area that God is calling you to engage in. Another way to identify what it is that God might be calling you to do is based on your interactions. Who are the people who are far from God but they're close to you? Who are the, what are the situations, uh, problematic as they may be, that you are already in contact with? 
one of the pastors at our church um, is one of my heroes, and uh, he had an interaction that led him to do one of the most um, uh, humbling things that I've uh, been a witness to. Uh, he works with Young Life, and it's an organization that works with teens. And yeah, shout out to the Young Life people. Uh, and when he was working with this organization, uh, he would go to different places and you know teach at different group homes, and he would pass out his business card to everybody. One kid called him back, but he wasn't calling him back from his house. Uh, he was calling him from prison. He had gotten arrested, and they started a friendship while he was locked up. When he got out of prison, uh, he hit my boy up and was talking to him about life, and my friend asked him the first question, hey, where are you staying? And he tried to make up an excuse, like, oh, you know, I'm staying with, um, remember that one family I told you about? So I stay there Tuesday, and this day I do this. And my friend kept on pressing him, and he found out that he was sleeping on the train every single night. 21 years old, sleeping on the train. Now, at this point, my boy had two teenage daughters, a two-year-old, and um, his wife was pregnant again, all in a two-bedroom apartment. He saw this kid who was in a terrible situation, and his heart broke for him, and he wanted to see this kid restored. So he said, you know what? I want you to come and live with me. Now, to this date, I, I, can't, um, I can't think about this story without getting a little choked up when I think about what has happened in this kid's life as a result of his investment in him. His life is 180 degrees different than what it used to be. His life has been abruptly interrupted by someone who was willing to engage him. And it wasn't his burden to work with people coming out the penal system. It wasn't his gift. He, don't, he doesn't have a lot of money. He doesn't have a lot of space in his place. It was simply his interaction. Now, there might be people that are in your current sphere of influence. There might be situations that you are currently associated with. And I want you to think through and pray through what those people or situations might be that God might be calling you to engage in. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to pray about it. And that sounds a little, like, uh, heretical, and I'm going to clean it up. They let me say this in the first service because I cleaned it up. Um, I don't want you to pray about it. If there's a godly need that you can meet in a godly way, I want you to start walking in that direction first, and then I want you to pray to God to close the door if it's not the area you should go in. Frederick Douglass said this, and it's wrecked me ever since I heard it, and I hope it wrecks you in the same way. He said this, um, I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Some of the praying that you and I need to do is praying with our legs. Here's what we do. Most of us, if we keep it all the way live, we have prayed ourselves into inaction. Lord, if it's your will, on Tuesday night, would you send an angel to tickle my feet? And if he tickles my feet under the sheets, then I will know. Lord, definitively that you have called me into this situation, and Lord, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, Lord. <laughs> and when God doesn't show up to us in some miraculous way, we say, well, God, it's not your will, and we move on. But what happens is time passes, and we're one of those people that are sitting on the sidelines. I don't want us to pray our way to an action. I want us to pray with our legs towards action. If there is a godly need that you could meet in a godly way, I want you to go to your city group. I want you to go to the pastors here. I want you to say, pastor, city group friend, I'm going to start walking in this direction. Would you pray with me as I go? And God might close the door. 
He might, and if he does, it's all good uh, to be rerouted. But it is much, much easier to reroute someone that is in motion than to propel someone and start someone who is dead on a log. And if you are one of those people who is already in action, God can use you. But if you're one of those people who sits down and you're like, man, God, I'm not going to go unless I'm 10 million percent sure, then, man, it might just be, you might look up years and years from now and realize that you've wasted a whole lot of time. I don't want us to be those people. Now, this, after we've determined what area it is that we might engage in, uh, the next thing I want us to do is to, we have to get close to the things that we care about. We have to get close to the stuff that we care about. Now, social media is good for some purposes. It doesn't, it, it lets me stay in contact. It lets you stay in contact with people that you haven't seen in a long time. Um, but there is one real danger of social media, particularly as it pertains to justice. It has, a, it has the power to turn you into a real live armchair activist in which it gives you the, the sensation of action when in reality, you are nowhere near the situation. It gives you this, this feeling that you are involved when in reality, you are nowhere close to anything that is going on. And if you're not careful, you can be as outraged as you want to be about a topic, about an issue, and still you're not really engaged at all. There's a Peruvian philosopher and theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez, and he says it like this. You say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? You say you care about prison reform, then tell me, name some prisoners. You say you care about adoption and foster care. What children are you talking about? Social media gives us this sensation that we have done something when in reality we are completely on the sidelines, not doing anything. And with the, with the aid of a few likes or retweets uh, and a couple of hearts on Facebook, you'll start to think that you're doing a good job. But we got to get close to the problems that we care about. Mainly because by getting close to the problems that we care about, it allows us to see what actually should be done in the situation. If you stand too far back, you'll be by, at best, you'll be making a guess of what you should be doing because you're not close enough to really realize what needs to be done. There's a, a guy at our church that we've been discipling for a little bit. And one of the things that I've noticed and probably even celebrated early on in knowing him was how hard of a worker he was. And it was a joke around the office. Man, that dude is such a hard worker. Uh, and eventually, I started to talk, you kind of talk to him and notice Man, this dude, like his work life is actually pretty intense. It's actually out of bounds from healthy work-life balance. Uh, it's nowhere near healthy. And I was getting ready to have a conversation with him about good, healthy boundaries. The closer I got to him, I realized that it wasn't that he needed boundaries. What had led him and what leads him towards overwork is not that he doesn't have boundaries. It's he is paralyzed by fear. He's terrified of failing. In his life, he has this narrative that tells him, if you fail, you're a failure. So in a way to undo this narrative that's going on in his head, he works so hard, twice as hard, three times as hard as any person should be working. And if I were to go to him with some, a list of good, healthy boundaries, I wouldn't be addressing what he actually needs. What he, he doesn't need boundaries. He needs to know that he's accepted. 
He needs to know that God loves him. He needs to know that he is loved regardless of his performance. He needs to know that it is not, we can add absolutely nothing to God's pleasure for us and that all of it was satisfied with Christ. And yes, God wants us to work hard, but he doesn't want us to work for our lives. Now, our relationship now is much different based on the proximity that I have to him. And as a result, we're not working about boundaries. We're working on his fear. What is it that has you so afraid? Why is it that you feel so terrified of failing? What does it say about you if this thing that you do doesn't work out to be absolutely perfect? And as a result, it's a much more healthy approach. Now, the closer you get to situations, the more and more you might realize that what you thought on the, on the outside, on the, from the outset, isn't what is actually necessary. And it will help you to refine what it is that you should be doing. But even more importantly, we have to get close to the problems that we care about because that's how Jesus did it. Jesus got close to us. Jesus got close to us. John 1 is a pretty famous scripture where it talks about Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When God decided that time was, time was in his fullness had come and it was time for us to be saved, God didn't do it by sending a word. He did it by coming himself. He got close to the problem that he was coming to solve. And if you and I will be people of justice, followers of Jesus, we need to get close um, a couple of months ago, we were talking to some friends, and one of my friends had a, a real issue in understanding why it is that Jesus had to die. And he kept on saying, but I get it, man, but why couldn't God, like, just forgive us? And why couldn't God just say, man, it's all good, and I, and I, and I forgive you? And I was thinking, it is absolutely impossible to really get close to sick and hurting people and you not get sick yourself. My son is in daycare now. My three-year-old is in daycare. And we used to think that he had a good immune system, but that was until he went to daycare. He went to the human germ factory. And uh, when he was there, that dude gave me and my wife like six stomach viruses in the last two years. It's actually my summer diet plan. I'm like, well, if I get a rotavirus before Jamaica, I'll be good. I'll be, I'll be ready by the time I get to the beach, lose five pounds every time. Uh, it's actually, it's painful, but it but it works. It's every time he gets sick, I'm always yelling at my wife like, yo, leave him alone. Let him lay down in the corner. He's fine. He doesn't need to be picked up. He doesn't need to be held. He doesn't need to be coddled. And in her love for him, she gets close to him. And then eventually he wins me over. He's a cute kid. And I take care of him too. But here's what happens. Every time I get close to him when he's sick, I get sick. The reason Jesus went to the cross is because it's impossible to bear the weight of sick people and you yourself not bear that sickness. Jesus himself experienced the weight of infinite sickness on that cross, infinite pain, because he was coming into contact with infinite sin and, and disgust uh, of our lives, all of our sin laid out on the cross for him to take. He became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came, he got close, he got so close that we put our illness on him and, he, and we get his righteousness back. If you and I are going to be people of justice, we need to be people that get close to the situations that we care about. Now, 
after you have determined where you should engage and after you're making steps to actually get close to that, the third thing I want you to do is I want you to think about this concept. Sometimes you're going to have to do really uncomfortable things. Now, we live in an age of self-care uh, where I'm not doing that. You know, I got I to gotta take care of me. This, this 2018 is my year, you know what I'm saying? I got to make sure it's, it's my time to shine. I have to get right, cutting off all these people because this is my time for self-care. Now, there's a place for that. I don't think um, previous generations have had uh, enough emphasis on emotional health and being right. Uh, but I think if we're not careful, that, con- that concept of self-care actually makes us believe that we shouldn't do anything that's uncomfortable. But Scripture doesn't enforce those thoughts. As a matter of fact, whenever anybody came into contact with God, God was always pushing them well outside of their comfort zones. Uh, I heard James say actually one time um, that one really good way to know that you are serving the God of your imagination is that this God never calls you to do anything that's outside your comfort zone. Somehow, he just agrees with everything. You're like, yo, God, that's so crazy. I was just going to say, that's what I should do. And you said that too? Son, this is great. I'm with you, bro. I'm with you. This is, this is amazing. But in Scripture, when you see God call someone, God actually calls them well outside their comfort zones. And there's a story in Scripture about a dude named Abraham. And Abraham was living the good life. He had an amazing apartment with a doorman that got all his Amazon packages. Uh, He had outdoor space, a terrace, and it was rent controlled. So he he never had to worry about his rent going up. And then one day God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave. And I want you to go to a place that you know not of. I want you to go to Staten Island, Abraham. (laughs) Sorry, Staten Island people, I apologize. In the story of Abraham, we see what it's like to walk with God, that God uproots you from what's comfortable and puts you on a journey where you simply have to trust him. If that's what's happening in your life and your walk with God as you decide where it is that you should engage, if where it is that you think God is calling you is so comfortable and so safe, that might not be God that's talking to you. It might not be God. It might just be the God of your imagination that's calling you uh, to keep the status quo. So much of our life um, is lived for ourselves. So uh, Jesus' call for us to be people that follow him uh, is almost goes against every grain and every fab- fiber in our bodies. Uh, there's a scripture that Jesus uh, has said where he talks to people about that want to follow him. And he says, if anybody wants to follow me, great. This is what you have to do. You guys listening? Great. I want you to pick up your cross. I want you to, to deny yourself. And then I want you to follow me. People are like, Jesus, I, I don't know about that. What does it even mean to pick up my cross? And uh, There's an old theologian by the name of A.W. Tozer who said that everybody who picks up the cross has three distinct uh, markers about their life. Number one, they are facing a new direction. To pick up your cross means you are facing a brand new direction. It also means you're never turning back. Nobody has ever gone home after marching their cross. And thirdly, It means you no longer have plans of your own. Picking up a cross means you're facing a brand new direction, you're never turning back, and you no longer have plans of your own. I think that's required, that's what's required to be a person of justice, where you're facing a new direction. Instead of fulfilling yourself, you're worried about how God can use you as an instrument of his justice. And you no longer have 
plans of your own. All of the plans of the way you've set yourself up to live, you're saying, God, I abandoned my plans as meager as they are. I abandoned my plans into your hands. And God, I'm asking you just to lead me forward. And that's a dangerous prayer to pray, but it's one that will be the clearest in your life. Now, after you have determined uh, where you'll engage and you've gotten close to the problems that you care about and you're, and you're engaged and actually doing some of the uncomfortable things, man, I want us to remember this fourth step, which is so, so, so necessary. We have to remain hopeful. We have to remain hopeful, and here's why. Change does not happen overnight. Brian Stevenson is an amazing author and thinker, uh, and he runs the Equal Justice Initiative, and he's responsible for the Lynching Museum in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, his organization specializes in freeing men and women who are on death row and who have been wrongly convicted. And this is one case that he worked on, uh, a guy named Anthony Ray Hinton, who had been on death row for 30 years for a crime that he did not commit. And Stevenson worked on his case for 15 years before he was exonerated. That means for 15 years, he worked on his case, and for 14.999 of them joints, nothing happened. You might put yourself in a direction, and you might be going in that direction to work for justice, and you might not see anything happen for 15 years. But I want to remind you of these words in Scripture that we see in Galatians 6 and 9. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time If we don't give up, we have to remain hopeful knowing that anything good is not immediate. And most things that are immediate really aren't that good. Where God might be calling you to move into, that area of life that God might be calling you to move into, you might not see any results in that area for a decade. But it doesn't mean that's not where God wants you to be. It doesn't mean that's where, uh, um, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't give us an out uh, to go into a different direction. Now, also to remain hopeful, I think we need to be people um, continuing to uh, meditate not just on God's love for us, but also on God's power. Uh, One of the things I've been most convicted of personally in that both of my preaching and also in my own personal devotion life, devotional life, how little I focus on Jesus' resurrection. And I think a lot about Jesus' crucifixion and uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made, but I don't think as much about Jesus' resurrection and his power. Now, to be a person who remains hopeful... I think you need, those two should never be separated because, yes, there will be the, the Good Fridays, uh, the days where, like Jesus' disciples, things happen that are the opposite of encouraging. If you think about it, Jesus' disciples were living in an absolute nightmare the day that Jesus was crucified. The one that they had left everything to follow was now being hung up naked on a cross like a common cr- uh, criminal. And that day for them was anything but good. And they were losing hope. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight when we read that story to see that three days later, Jesus was resurrected with all power in his arms, in his, in his hands, and that turned that, 12, that group of 12 fearful men into the boldest, most courageous people on the planet. And it wasn't Jesus' teachings that made them bold. It wasn't Jesus' words to them that gave them courage and hope. It was the fact that he had all power in his hand. Jesus gives us these words in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. 
remain hopeful, not because you can figure out the next path, the next step in your life, but because Jesus has conquered the world. I remember growing up, um, I'm the younger brother. It's me and my older brother in a family. And, uh, you know, I, I guess as a younger brother and also just the fact that I wasn't the brightest kid in the world, um, we would always talk a lot of junk to people on the courts. And I knew that when I saw my brother and his crew there, I can talk as much smack as I wanted to because I had someone that was stronger on my side. So I was talking as greasy as I wanted to. And the second uh, someone would, would, would rise up, I'd be like, yo, 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 yo. So what's good? So what's up? What y'all trying to do? Hold me back. Hold me back. Hold me back. <laughs> Jesus is the strong man that has overcome the world. He's saying, in this world, you're going to have your troubles. Yes. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be different things that come in your path that will dishearten you. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. If, if death could not hold Jesus in this grave, then there is no situation in front of you or in front of me that can hold him back either. Now, in your pursuit, you're going to have to not just um, rely on yourself to remind this, yourself of this, but on the people around you who will uh, be talking through the scriptures together and, and challenging each other and motivating each other to remind each other of God's great love for us, yes, but also his great power in the resurrection. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know the variety of ways that... Um, the people in this room will be feeling the tug to move in their gifts and their burdens and their interactions towards you and justice, towards seeing the uh, people restored, towards seeing systems restored, towards seeing the restoration of people for your name and for your glory. God, I pray for boldness. I pray for radical boldness. That we'd have the courage to walk in the direction, not based on 100% certainty, but Lord, but based on the fact that there's a godly need that we can meet in a godly way. And God, I pray along the way that you would give us clarity. But first, give us the boldness to move towards you and to be a people of justice. Help us to have our tanks so full based on what you have done for us, that we're, it's pouring out and our desire to see your love, your restoration poured out on others. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.